Welcome to the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. Each week, we're going to be here to educate you, challenge you, encourage you along your journey to better health and intermittent fasting. Check us out at fastinglane.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Fasting Lane. Guess who my guest is this week? I've been trying to get this lady for a minute. Our guest is Tracy D. Brown, the Chief Executive Officer of the American Diabetes Association. Tracy, thank you so much for finally joining me. Eve, I'm so excited to be here, and it's so fantastic to see you. It is so good to see you again, too, and it's been years, but guys, I actually knew this lady um, from her past life as a big-time marketing executive in Dallas. So Tracy is now the CEO of the American Diabetes Association. I heard this a while back, and I was really confused. I'm like, how does this woman keep on moving up in all, all these interesting ways? So I really haven't gotten a chance to hear the story, and I want to today. But Tracy really impresses me because I think a lot of you know I speak a lot on authenticity, hyper-transparency, leadership, diversity, women empowerment, and Tracy really represents a lot of those things all wrapped up into one human to me. So I'm excited to talk to her today because she is the very first CEO of the American Diabetes Association who lives with type 2 diabetes in her daily life. So Tracy, what happened? We, we haven't talked for a while. You were in Dallas and then you went on to an, another big time career in marketing and CMO land. And then I kept seeing you at conferences and then suddenly you're the CEO of the American Diabetes Association. What the heck happened? Give me the story. Yeah, the, the short story, Eve, is this is an example of purpose meeting passion meeting position for me. So as you know, when I was there in Dallas, I was the CEO and managing director of RAP Dallas, which is a data-driven advertising agency. Um, from there, I uh, worked there for several years, fantastic, lots of clients. Um, from there, I ended up uh, taking a job uh, at Sam's Club Walmart. So I became the chief marketing uh, and membership officer for Sam's Club, bringing all together kind of my sets of experience, leveraging quantitative data, membership, loyalty, marketing, all of that wrapped together. Now, I think, um, Eve, you know that when I was in Dallas, I was living with diabetes. So I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, 16 years ago. I had gestational um, diabetes. For 80% of the women, it goes away. I was in that minority 20% where it didn't go away. Uh, I have a beautiful 16-year-old daughter. Uh, when she was five, she asked me if I was going to die from diabetes. So that is when I just changed my whole everything because I made a commitment to her, to myself, to my husband, to my family, that I wasn't going to succumb to diabetes and its complications. So I show up. And so I've been talking about um, unapologetically my diabetes story because part of the issue, Eve, as you know, is uh, millions of people are, are walking around with diagnosed diabetes and that don't even know it. And uh, even more people are walking around with prediabetes and don't even know it. Like 90% of the people walking around the country with prediabetes, they don't know that they have prediabetes. So I decided as my own form of driving awareness and protesting against this disease, I was always going to tell my story. So in Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, so I moved from 
I'm a New York girl, first of all. So New York to, to Texas was already a like, what? And then I go from Texas to Bentonville, Arkansas, and that was another what? Um, but in Bentonville, I was always talking about living with diabetes. And in fact, I started using the language thriving with diabetes uh, has been my, my mantra. I was attacked by the local American Diabetes Association uh, office in Bentonville, Arkansas, to participate in a uh, fundraising campaign that they call Kiss a Pig. Now, Kiss a Pig is an ode to the pig because that's the first form of insulin. Now, they take prominent business leaders, um, there were 10 of us, and we compete for this title. So I thought the person who raised the most money didn't have to kiss a pig. I'm not, I'm not a good, I'm not an animal person. I'm not, right? So I was like, great. You're not into kissing pigs. I'm not into kissing pigs. I want to knock this out of the park. And so my team and I did knock it out of the park. We raised over $300,000, which is the most in the history of kiss a pigs amongst the American Diabetes Association. And that's when I learned that I actually had to kiss the pig. That's a whole nother thing. I ended up doing it. I was freaked out by the whole thing, but whatever. Um, that actually got the attention um, of the national board. So someone on the national board was like, who, who, what's going on down there in Bentonville, Arkansas? Who's raising $300,000? Met uh, folks from the board of the national chapter of the American Diabetes Association. Um, subsequently joined the national chapter in Arlington, Virginia of the National Diabetes Association. And you know me, Eve, I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things. And so I had a lot of thoughts around diabetes and what we could be doing differently and more of. And one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, um, I was asked if I would consider becoming the CEO. And in which case, I was like, I got a good job. I'm doing great things. <laughs> I, love, I love Sam's Club Walmart. Things are going great. But this is what I mean about purpose, passion, and position. So years ago, um, I really started to understand that my purpose was really to help people become the best version of themselves. And I had thought for a long time, because I'm very driven and very career oriented, and I knew at a young age I wanted to be a CEO, and I, I got that ring early, like in my 30s, and was like, is that all there is to this? And that's when I really started to search, well, what is really my purpose? Helping people become the best version of themselves. Then with this, uh, my passion, I became extremely passionate about diabetes when my daughter asked me if I was going to die. Now, you should say you should have been passionate before and you should have been passionate for the five years, but I wasn't. And then I said, position. So my husband and I, I came back from a board meeting and I said, oh my God, honey, I was asked if I would consider being a CEO for the American Diabetes Association. Ha, 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 ha. You know, and he was like, I don't know that you should laugh at that, about that. We should probably pray about that and see if this is in alignment. And so we did, and this is the final piece. So my purpose, I'm very clear on my purpose. And I don't think it's by chance that I am living with diabetes. My passion is all around uh, 
educating, driving awareness, and doing everything that I can to, to showcase to people that you can thrive while living with diabetes. And then obviously this position of leading the world's largest diabetes organization, those things came into alignment and I made the jump. And, and many people were like, what are you doing? I mean, I, I had a wonderful career at Sam's Club Walmart, but this was the right thing for me to fulfill God's purpose for my life. So that's why I'm here. Long story. I love that. So it all started with the pig, kissing a pig, which you still had to do, which cracks me up. And I, I love how you talk so openly because I've, I've always been impressed by you, amazed by you and found similarities in us that we, I find we're very business driven, outspoken women leaders who just aren't afraid to, to say what we want. And it's obvious like you and I are both good at making money right? We're good at making money, but it just isn't enough. Like it's just not enough. It feels great. It's yeah. wonderful. And I'm proud of that ability, but I I'm really interested in your path and how you found this, this position that enabled you to lead people and support your family and take what you believed in. I, I took a different path. I sold my agency a few years ago. Yeah. And I'm, I have a video production company. I still do marketing and consulting, but I cared about other things just as much diversity, women leadership. And it wasn't enough to just talk about that in corporations. I had to talk about it in life, mental health, openness, transparency, all these things that we just now we don't have to pretend like I'm doing this from my home, right? Like we have a little studio in our home because we're mostly most people, a lot of people are at home still right now. You can't not hear my dog barking or my daughter walk in to ask for help. Um, we're all authentically living our lives and we can't hide our professional life from our personal life and our health issues from our, our work life. It's, it's not that world anymore. It's all out on the table. And I love how you took that ability and put it behind the cause that you believe in. I couldn't figure out how to do that, quite honestly. I had to, I've still kept them pretty separate. You know, I, I wrote a book and I started a site about intermittent fasting and then I continue working in marketing and company culture. And it's always so interesting to me how these personal conversations cross over with business because in the end, whether we're business people or stay at home parents or single people, whatever we're doing, we have to be healthy enough to continue our life. Yeah. We have to feel good about whatever our passion and purpose is in life. And so all those conversations are, it's the same right? I just think it's the same. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that is what it's all about, um, Eve. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we all uniquely have something to add to this world. Um, and and those, those of us uh, who have the courage to find that and actually not be led or persuaded or distracted by other things or around what other people think you should be doing. Um, that's not what it's uh, about. And I, I think in today's world, particularly, people are searching for real, authentic, transparent people. I mean, technology is a wonderful thing. I love technology. Um, 
But what it also started to do was allow people to create different personas and live there. It, it's a different life on screen than real life. And I think the world has just been changing. And, and if COVID-19 has, has taught us anything, I think now more than ever, um, people want real. Um, yes. And, you know, that's, that's what I think connects people, right? Like connection happens through realness, authenticity, transparency. And then if anybody wants to change behavior of any kind, because at the end of the day, managing your diabetes is really um, about changing of behaviors. And if you wanna change behaviors, um, it starts with emotions and feeling because people feel before they think. And for me, connection with people and helping people understand that you can thrive with diabetes. You can overcome obstacles and hurdles. You can be anything, do anything, have anything that you wanna have. Diabetes doesn't have to stop you from doing that. However, we have to manage it. So I think you're, you're right. Um, connection, authenticity, transparency. Um, I think the world needs more of that, honestly. I agree. And I think one of the other things that the, the world needs more of as we get into this sensitive conversation is openness and kindness. Openness to information and other people's beliefs and acceptance to, to what they have to find that yeah. is right for them. So I want to talk a bit about your personal diabetes and what you have found has helped you. And I want to talk about how we give people access to information so they can find their right choices. So I'm a, for, for, I don't know how much you know about my history, Tracy, but I was obese for 24 years. You were just saying, I look super great. Thank you. I totally do. Um, I've, I finally found the answers for me in the past two years. And that was after 24 years of every diet and, and three bariatric surgeries and counseling and therapy and binge eating addiction, pre-diabetes, PCOS, um, and my mom has diabetes type two, which she has also found uh, for herself help with intermittent fasting and low carb eating. I am so frustrated by the way that people, mostly on social media, break each other down for their decisions and choices. And so I want to be clear, and I've always been clear about the purpose of Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. We've been around for almost two years now. We talk about being carnivore, we talk about being vegan, we talk about being vegetarian, low carb, intermittent fasting, long-term, different choices. And this site has always been, and this podcast has been about access to information because I think this information is really important. And I don't think it's, there's not the same solution for everyone. So what I'd love for you to talk about is your personal ways that you've managed your type two diabetes, how it's helped. And then I'd like you to talk about how can we give people to access to information and, and kindness to each other to stay open to find the right choices for our health and our body? Yeah, um, man, Eve, I couldn't agree more with you around this kindness and openness. There, there is so much um, unkindness around what people are doing, how people are doing it. There's enough problems in the world. 
I think we need to figure out how, where are our points of common connection and interest and not get so uh, caught up on the division and the divisiveness and I'm right and you're wrong. I, I don't believe in that at all. So I'm gonna to talk to you about my journey and as you can uh, imagine, as the CEO of uh, the world's largest uh, diabetes organization, uh, I get more feedback from people than a little bit. I get more hate from people than a little bit. But that's okay. What I'm gonna keep doing is just as you said, try to provide enough information and choices for people to decide how they're going to manage, because it's their journey. So I'll talk about my journey. Um, I talked about gestational diabetes. I was on insulin. I was insulin dependent. After my daughter, and so my daughter used to see me take my blood sugars, take my insulin, all of those things. At five years old, you know, children out of the mouth of babes. And she's like, I don't know, this doesn't probably seem normal. Are you gonna die? So I decided, because I'm type two, and you know, if I were type one, I wouldn't necessarily have the choice because type ones uh, don't make insulin at all. I'm a type two, so I still was making insulin, my body, my pancreas. Um, I have insulin resistance and I needed more insulin. But I also did a lot of reading on my own and in conversations with my healthcare professionals to say, I wanna get off insulin. Is it even possible? From what I read, from conversations, it was. So I went down a journey of changing my diet, changing my exercise routine. I, I've always been one who, have, who has exercised, but I was gonna change it a bit. So I took those two things initially and started to notice that my need for insulin was getting less. So I was able to get off the insulin and then I went to four oral medications. And I said, I wanna, I wanna get off these oral medications. And so for me, again, I'm a, I'm a reader, I digest, I, I, I consume a lot, I'm a knowledge seeker, like all kinds of information. For me, I started to say, well, okay, I've got insulin resistance going on, and I know that diabetes is about uh, having elevated blood sugars in your body, right? That's, that's what causes the, the diabetes. What will happen if I reduce the number of sugars that I'm putting in my body? That's a, a decision and a choice that I made. So I started it out by trying to do like sugar-free things. And then I got smarter and I was just like, well, carbohydrates turn into sugar. I wonder what will happen if I just reduce my level of carbohydrates that I'm ingesting. So I went there and Eve, I, I went from four oral medications down to two. Now, you know, just like most humans, when you see yourself making progress, you're like, well, hey, something's working. I put in my mind, can I get off of these medications altogether? Again, doesn't have to be everybody's goal, Eve. This was just my goal, because this is my journey. And so I decided that I wanted to do that. And 
I got to a place where I stalled all of my tricks about, um, you know, reducing uh, my carbs, working out, da da da. I like plateaued and I couldn't figure out how to drop these two. So I then asked my doctor about continuous glucose monitoring. And so I said, I want a CGM because maybe, maybe, you know, I'm a data person. Maybe there's something that I'm not seeing. Lo and behold, I, I start wearing a CGM. And lo and behold, here's what, I, here's what I discovered, Eve. I'm a night owl. I had been. I've changed my behavior. I didn't really sleep very much. Maybe four hours of sleep um, a night. The CGM helped me understand what lack of sleep was doing to my blood sugars. Yes. And then, I like you. I'm a type A personality. I'm hard driving, da 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 I don't really feel stressed. But the CGM helped me understand when I am stressed and that the, my blood sugars. So I said, okay, I got to change some things. So I'm still a night owl, but I get at least six hours of sleep, which has made a huge difference. And I know that I need to get to like eight to 10. I haven't figured that out yet, but I, I got to six and that had a tremendous impact on my blood sugars. And then the stress, because maybe I've just been hard charging my life. I didn't, I didn't really understand when I'm feeling stressed. And so I started, I tried yoga and yoga doesn't work for me, but I, you know, I was just trying, I tried yoga. Um, I tried deep breathing. I've tried. Now the thing that works for me is those calming waters, you know, the apps where you can hear the, that, I have learned works for me to help me bring down my stress. The other thing that I learned worked for me, and this is a lot of trial and error, was nature, being in and around nature. And so if anyone sees, you know, we've moved a bit, we build our house or we buy a house that backs up to a ravine. So that all I have to do is walk out to the back of my house, and then I'm right there with the nature, with the things that calms me down. So I say all that to say, if I showed you my blood uh, glucose sugar reading right now, it's about 85. That's the level that people who don't have diabetes, that's what their blood sugars will be. I've dropped, I have one, one oral medication that I probably could drop, honestly. Um, because I maintain my blood sugars at a good level. So that's my story. And people are like, well, you know, you're ultra low carb or you're this, you're that. I, I don't put labels on myself. What I will tell you is I'm doing everything in my power to manage my blood sugars. What works for me is managing what I eat, managing my exercise, my stress, and my sleep. There is no single you know, silver bullet. There is no one way, I don't believe. My journey isn't everybody's journey, but I am not gonna shy away from saying, what worked for me? A lower carb diet in concert with exercise, and by the way, I don't exercise five days a week. Now, this is a little secret, and maybe I shouldn't really say this, but I have figured out with my CGM, that whether I exercise three days a week, Eve, or five, the result is the same. So 
I find ways to walk and, I, you know, I, you know, well, no one's doing a lot of stuff in, anymore, but, you know, I park my car from the far, farthest place. When I was in the office, I take the stairs, da, da, da. And I get in three workouts a day. That, that works for me. A day or a week? I'm sorry, a week. Okay. That works for me. Yeah, not a day, a week. That works for me, but everything doesn't work for everybody. I subscribe to low, uh, lower carb diet, but there are people that I know that are vegan, plant-based, like, like I'm not gonna say no to that. What I'm gonna say is let's figure out how to help you get to a place of managing your blood sugars. All right, so, Tracy, did you get a copy of my book yet? I'm gonna talk about my book now. No, can you send it to me? Yes, I need you to send me your address so I can mail it to you. Okay. This is Life in the Fasting Lane, and I'm, I want you to read it, and then I wanna see if, there, if you think there might be useful information for your audience. This is a book I wrote with Dr. Jason Fung, who is a, a fantastic doctor on fasting. Megan Ramos, who's partnered with him, who is a researcher who has treated people with fasting. And me, who is like a, a, a person who really struggled with obesity for 24 years and found her health through low carb eating and intermittent fasting. And I'm terrible at it. And the reason I bring this up is because um, I had pre-diabetes. I do not anymore. My mom has diabetes type two. Thank you. My mom has diabetes type two and is doing much better with these techniques. Um, and, and we talk about how these things can affect health. And one of the main reasons I want to bring it up is I think this book is different with these three perspectives, because when you talk about the fact that we all have different choices. I went to doctors for 24 years and looked for the answers and I didn't find the right answers for me. The answers I was given was medication, eat eight to 10 times a day, get in carbs, um, exercise, uh, go to therapy, which I did, you know, hire a trainer, which I did. I did all the things, but it ended up with suggesting three bariatric surgeries that mm. did not help me be not pre-diabetic and, and did not help me reduce hunger. The only thing that ever worked for me was low carb and intermittent fasting. And I, especially in this time of the pandemic and people losing their jobs, um, and, and also some of the things I've, I've heard around correlation between possible uh, higher issues with diabetes and COVID, possibilities of catching it, people need access to information to decide if this might be something they want to try. Because... I never had this information. I didn't understand fasting. I'm a woman from South Louisiana. Like we, we don't skip any meals ever. And the food is the best in the world. So like, it's not happening. So I thought this was craziness. It just seemed so counterintuitive to me. I was going to break my metabolism and just get bigger and bigger and less healthy. I was 300 pounds. But the two things I love that you said was people need access to information to make their choices. And the other thing I love you saying is, if you work out three times a week or five times a week, you found that the results were the same. So you did the least amount of work possible. And that's what I talk about here. I would like to do the least amount of work possible to be healthy, to be happy, and to be hot. Like, why can't we admit as humans, we don't want things to be hard and do a ridiculous amount of work. Why can't we as best friends talk to each other and be like, listen, your goal is to lose five pounds. Maybe if you, um, you know, didn't eat breakfast a couple of days a week, that might get you there. Like, why can't we talk about that? We're talking about solutions 
that will enable people right now who possibly lost their job and who have less income right now and may even lead to things and decisions they make for themselves that may take them off of medications with health insurance they don't have. Um, so I'm, I'm so passionate about this and I'm so excited about what you said and the fact that these are your choices and what has worked for you and that people need access to information, especially like when you're talking around, around sleep. So many people are not aware of how that affects cortisol and diabetes and health overall, and mental health, right? Like mental health. Um, so can you talk a little bit, my, my first question, I'm going to ask a personal question. You look super fit to me. And I think a lot of people believe that people with type two diabetes are always overweight. Always. Yeah. It's, it, there's blame, there is stereotypes, there is judgments that are made about people. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. Have you ever been overweight? And how do we deal with those stereotypes and, and, and get people to understand that there is not one picture of, of diabetes type one or type two? These are all different types of humans. Yes. So the stigma that you talk about is so real, um, Eve, associated with diabetes. And it's a real issue. And I think part of the reason why um, people don't talk about it, um, and it is a silent killer because people don't want the judgments and the stigma. And I was traveling pre-COVID all around the country, and now I'm Zooming, um, talking about diabetes. And Inevitably, in almost every uh, presentation, someone would come up to me after and say, you don't look like you have diabetes. And I would immediately say, well, what does that mean? And then there would be this awkward pause. And then I'm like, no, really, what, what does that mean? Well, you look fit, you look, you, you look like you eat right. And I'm like, diabetes doesn't discriminate. Um, and this notion, that you somehow have brought the diabetes onto yourself or it's because you're not taking care of your body or you're obese or you're this or that, we need to stop with all of that. So from a, have I ever been obese or overweight? I mean, if you use the BMI um, calculation, yeah, I've been for my age range or whatever over, over the, the limit. Um, but I have always been, um, you know, I'm, I was a, a college athlete. I've played sports my whole life. I enjoy working out. So I've always done those kinds of things. What I will tell you is um, we got to stop with the stigma because it's shame and it's guilt. And so when you start to peel back Eve, when I spend time with people and, and ask, you know, let's get on a road to managing your diabetes, the first thing that I'm peeling through is actually people feeling guilty and shameful that, that somehow they've brought this thing on themselves. They da da da. And so you got to get through all of that. The other thing is people don't want to tell people about diabetes because of what you said earlier. There's just a lot of unkindness in the world. And then people start telling you what you can and cannot eat. Like, why are you eating that? Don't you have diabetes? Like nobody needs all of that. Like that's not actually very helpful. So education and awareness, I think is the key, which is why I 
am so vocal, which is why the American Diabetes Association is out being so vocal. And there was a couple of things that you said that I, I just want to take a minute, um, particularly in this COVID-19 crisis. There's a lot of misinformation um, too around diabetes and the correlation to COVID-19 and any other underlying condition, whether it be heart disease, uh, hypertension, heart disease, obesity, all these underlying conditions. So there's information out there where people were saying, if you have diabetes, you're more likely to contract COVID-19. That is not true. Okay. That is not true. Any, anyone can contract COVID-19. But if you have an underlying condition that is unmanaged and you contract COVID-19, you have a higher likelihood for poorer outcomes. If you look at 90% of the hospitalized cases of COVID-19, people have some kind of underlying condition, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Uh, diabetes, I believe, is in the 30 to 40% uh, level there. If you look at the deaths and people that have died from COVID-19, uh, about 30% or more have had diabetes. Um, so if you are in an unmanaged state and you have these underlying conditions, there is a higher likelihood for poorer outcomes. The second thing that you talked about is unemployment, right? And everybody losing, many people, like over 30 million Americans unemployed right now uh, post-COVID-19. When that happens, mental health, I mean, people are, there's anxiety everywhere. Mental health is a very real thing and it plays havoc on your blood sugars. And that is why we need to be proactively talking about mental health is a real thing. And people need to deal with it, manage it, their strategies, like talk about this stuff. This is the stuff that people need help with. So talk about that. Uh, when you are unemployed, Eve, nine times out of 10, you've lost your health insurance. If you've lost your health insurance, there's all kinds of data that says your health outcomes, just in general, will be poor. So we gotta help people, provide them with strategies on how to stay healthy, not only in the COVID-19, but even beyond. And then the third thing is helping people Okay, people with diabetes have medical costs that are almost two and a half times a person without diabetes. And so when you, first of all, managing the, that from a, just a financial perspective, there's a burden there. If you uh, lose your job, it's devastating. And so the other thing um, that we have been talking about at the American Diabetes Association is also to lower some of these financial burdens, a uh, lesson from a copay perspective, go to zero copays for insulin in any diabetes medicines that people need. But the thing you said that I have found, when I managed my metabolic health, when I managed that, my need for insulin and prescription drugs got less. I want that for all people, there's financial burden. The amount of poverty in this country 
the greatest country in the world is astounding. So how do we provide strategies for people to navigate their health, their life? And that's what I love about what you're doing. Just trying to get some information out there for somebody. I've been rich and I've been not rich at all. I'm pretty broke. Uh, I prefer having money. It's much easier for sure, but I've experienced both. And I, I think when I saw things start to happen with the pandemic, the first thing I did was eat things I don't typically eat. Lots of sugar, lots of carbs. I don't typically eat a lot of those things. I do on holidays. I'm not perfect and I enjoy them sometimes. I also lost the ability to fast. I was so stressed out and worried about the world and worried about our own family and worried about health that for a week I just lost it and ate everything and felt terrible. And then the first thing I did was talk about it openly, make an appointment virtually with my mental therapist because I believe that if I go to a doctor to take care of my body, it is my duty to go to a professional to take care of my mind or I can't be the full person I'm, I'm trying to be. And that helped me get back on track with my eating. A lot of the things I see across the board, just on social media, um, is, is people doing what I did at the beginning, which is trying to deal with the stress by eating foods they don't usually eat, dropping their exercise program, um, not taking care of meditating. And I get it. Like I, I, I would love to just eat all the bad things and eat all the Twinkies. And I, I pretty much did that for a week. And I figured out it made me feel even worse. Like I felt even worse. And it, it worries me because I think what you just said is like, when these issues are unmanaged, that puts us in a possibly worse health position. And it, it doesn't take that long to begin to make improvements in your health. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. With whatever you, you do, your exercise, your sleep, your mental health, the way you eat, lowering your carbs, fasting, it, it doesn't take that long to make a change in your blood sugar levels and, and improve. So like, what if we right now do our very best to prioritize ourselves and our family um, to, to start making some of these changes we want to make now? Like, because I am worried about people without jobs. One of the reasons I got so passionate about fasting is, yes, I'm in a position right now where I have money, but what if I didn't? What if I wanted to live longer and not take medicine and I didn't have health insurance? What could I do? And one of the reasons I like intermittent fasting is it's accessible to every socioeconomic group if it's their decision to do it. It doesn't cost any money. You don't need a program. You don't, you don't, this book costs money, but go get it at the library. Listen to a podcast, look up a video. Um, that information's free so you can see if it's right for you. So I, I do have a question. Have you ever done intermittent fasting? Um, or, or do you know people with, with diabetes that have used it successfully? Yeah, so um, I probably was backed into intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, it's now, it's, it's, it's more of a, a thing now. Um, and I, I put a term to it because I, I know, but I will tell you, uh, Evi, before COVID-19, um, I am on the road every week. I'm in a lot of airplanes and a lot of airports. And I know that managing what I eat, my exercise, stress, and sleep matters greatly to managing diabetes. I'm not going to get myself out of the range, Eve. I've made that decision. So I'm on these planes, 
And there's no low carb nothing. Mm-mm. Cookies or pretzels? Neither of those work for me. Me either. So I could make the choice to eat those. And people would say, well, you know, you just need to um, be more organized and pack your lunch and do that. Uh, yeah, that's a strategy that will work for some. Not my best strategy. So what I started doing was I'm like, well, I'm just not going to eat on these plane rides. And so I started doing it. And it was working for me. And I started, I guess, intermittent fasting out of the desire of not, want, not choosing to eat the food on the airplanes that were not fitting into my low carb. So basically what that turned into was because I travel on an airplane at least once a week, the going to and the coming back, I didn't eat. And then I discovered nothing, right? Like I, I felt okay. So this is how I actually, I don't necessarily eat breakfast anymore because I was taking these very early morning flights, da 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 da. So I, I do that. And then since we've been quarantined, I don't know. Again, I don't know all of the science about what happens with your body, da 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 da. But I, don't really have the desire in the mornings to eat, even though that I have been home. So I don't eat, um, I don't really eat breakfast in the mornings. So the short answer is funny that now not eating breakfast in the morning, which I have known many people in my life who have were always fit and always did that. And I couldn't understand it. And I was like, that's so unhealthy. Oh my gosh, this is so awful. In the meantime, I was unhealthy and really obese. And now we, we have a name for it intermittent fasting. I guess it's fancy name for most people just not eating breakfast. Like it's, it's hilarious, right? I think it's hilarious and we can just call it that. It doesn't have to be so scary. Intermittent fasting could be you stop snacking. Like that could be it. You could just not eat for periods of time, as opposed to me who for many years was told eat eight to 10 times a day, which I did. And for me, that made me less healthy and, and larger. So my very complicated fasting system that I usually follow is not eating breakfast. I usually eat lunch and I eat dinner and I don't eat for like hours and hours at night in front of the TV, the way that I used to do. Like I just stop eating. Um, but I still love food and I still eat until I'm full and I go out to, well, I don't go out to restaurants now, but I did. And I have done a few curbside services and it was the best thing ever. Um, but I, I think also a lot of people who think they need to do make changes like low carb or they need to make changes like intermittent fasting or, or whatever way they want to change. They get scared that they can't love food. Do you love food? Because I, feel I love like it. I love food. Um, there's so much, um, for, for my family, a lot of memories are around us gathering around food. And by the way, I love breakfast food, right? That was eat it later. <laughs> That's one of my favorite meals. And by the way, I mean, I'm not, if I want to have breakfast, if, if the time comes that, you know, my family's doing the thing and they just want me to go have breakfast, by the way, I'll go have breakfast. I mean, I'm not that one. I know how to make You're it. flexible. I'm flexible. And so, yeah, um, food, I love it. I, we, before COVID, we would go out to eat a lot. My husband loves to cook and, uh, 
I have been, my daughter, my husband and I in this COVID-19 space been cooking together, which has actually been kind of cool because um, I don't usually get the opportunity to do that. So yeah, I mean, make no mistake, I love food and I eat. And I think that going back to the stigma, I feel like a lot of friends or people I've come across who have diabetes sometimes feel ashamed to eat in front of other people. Sometimes feel ashamed to like admit that they enjoy food, right? Which is necessary. And, and I can't stand it, right? Like this shame, this feeling of, of being ashamed of like needing to eat food and needing to enjoy food. Like how do, how do we help people deal with that? I think you just, I mean, for, for, for me, and that is why I kind of unapologetically tell our stories. I, I think people need to hear more. Um, what people that are thriving with diabetes are, they're actually doing, you know, I enjoy food. I just change the foods that I'm eating, Eve. That, that, that's all. Look, I will have, like last night we had uh, for dinner, uh, my husband grilled steaks on the grill, and then we had Brussels sprouts, and I always do two green vegetables, Brussels sprouts, and we had green beans, because I like to eat, Eve. Yes. You got to get a sous vide though. Like, let me be honest. The sous vide's way better than the grill. Let me be that honest with you because my husband does that, but we had steak and spaghetti squash last night. That's what we yeah, had. I mean, so I, I'm not, I'm not walking around hungry. I'm not, da, da, da. I just changed what I eat. And oh, by the way, in every restaurant pre-COVID that I went to, there's always something that I can find. And people say, what about when you're in the airport and da, 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 how did you still manage your thing? Like if I was, which is a very real thing for people who live in food deserts, by the way. I'd be in a small town, in a small airport where there's only like a fast food restaurant. There is still stuff to stay in my lower carb eating that I could find in there, even if it was nine times out of 10, they will have a salad on the menu. But even if I didn't want the salad, I take the chicken sandwich and throw away the bun. I mean, there's always something you can do, is my point. I agree. I do that lots of times. Okay, tell me about the ADA, because like, I really, I, I know you, but I don't know a lot about the ADA. How long has it been around? How, how many members? Are they mostly type one or type two? Tell me about it. Yes, yeah, so the American Diabetes Association has been around since uh, 1940. It's an 80-year organization, the largest diabetes organization uh, in the world. And 80 years ago, our founder and first president, Dr. Cecil Stryker, uh, created the promise, um, essentially, for American diabetes. And he said, and this is back in 1940, the American Diabetes Association exists to fight for people living with diabetes and that their medical, social, and economic problems are our problems. And we are to help them thrive and continue to fight for them until we find a cure. I could make that same statement right now and it is very, very relevant. So that's the, the promise um, of the organization. The second thing is from a missions perspective, what we're trying to do is prevent and cure diabetes for all people impacted by diabetes. We've got uh, 
two halves of our organization, which I think make it um, unique. We've got a professional membership organization where, you know, uh, 18,000 professional members, healthcare professionals, uh, become members of the ADA and we are able to provide them with education, knowledge, information, certifications, accreditations, all of those uh, things. Uh, we have a portion of our organization that focuses on advocacy and fighting for the rights of people. You know, people with diabetes are discriminated against uh, probably more so than most people think. Children are discriminated in schools. If they have to take insulin, they're not allowed. If there's not a nurse, they got to leave their classroom. Oftentimes they can't start school. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, we recently fought to get um, CDL drivers, truck drivers, to be able to drive if you have diabetes. Uh, the most recent uh, uh, win was the pilots. Pilots now, if you have managed diabetes, can fly with that diabetes, but they couldn't. So all kinds of discrimination. Uh, we fight uh, and advocate for change in legislation um, at both the federal and the local level to change policy, all of those things. And then, of course, there's the what I would call the consumer side or the people living with diabetes side, where we try to give out knowledge and information um, for if you're newly diagnosed to if you're somebody who's thriving to whatever, uh, all kinds of information uh, that we provide. And so there's a professional side, a living people living with diabetes side and all of those who love them. And then advocacy, that's what makes us unique. And during this COVID-19 time, because of the high correlation of hospitalized people and the high correlation of people dying from COVID-19, we are doing some very specific things to get information out um, on our diabetes professional uh, website called Diabetes Pro, tons of COVID-19 information for the healthcare professionals on our consumerdiabetes.org site, we have a COVID-19 resource page, all kinds of resources there. And then there's three things that we are advocating very hard for at the federal and state level. One is bringing COVID-19 testing to the underserved and at-risk communities. The high correlation of people of color being affected and dying from diabetes is startling. Yeah. And with states starting to open up with COVID-19 still on the rise, we've got to do a couple of things. We got to get testing into these communities, into the communities. There are all these drive-by clinics, but if you don't have a car and can't get to the clinic because you ride the bus every day, that's not helpful. So we're fighting for testing in the communities, fighting to lower the financial burden right now. For any American who's lost their job, who has diabetes, we're pushing for continuity of healthcare coverage, full stop. And then the third is lowering uh, the barriers as it relates to zero co-pays for insulin and diabetes prescription drugs. So those are just a few things, but the biggest thing, Eve, is because 50% of America is either living with diabetes or pre-diabetes, that no, means everybody knows somebody. And 
everybody knows somebody, but we're not talking about diabetes. Half of the battle is awareness and knowing. Every time I sit down and talk to someone and ask them, do you know someone living with diabetes? They, within 30 seconds, it's either themselves, their family members, or someone that they know. Then I ask them, do you know, do you, do you know your blood, blood glucose? Nope. Do you know your A1C? Nope. That's half the battle. And then the third thing I say is, talk to me about um, your, what, what do you eat on a, a, a daily basis? And then I start to hear what people are eating. And then that gives me the opportunity to start to educate people on the impact that the food actually has on their blood sugar. So I need just everybody talking about it, period, full stop. The, the, diabetes cost this country $327 billion. That was before COVID. So diabetes was an epidemic before the pandemic. COVID-19 is just shining a very bright light. We gotta do better, Eve. We as a, as a people, as humanity, we need to come together and help people live healthier lives, full stop. Tracy, I have so many more questions, but I don't really want to say anything after that speech. Dang, Tracy, I have missed you. I missed you I too. needed to hear all this. My mom has diabetes type two, and, and I'm uniquely interested because of that. But like, Tracy, I just like humans. And I feel like we all deserve to be treated the same, regardless of our health or our weight or our skin color or our religion, or like, we just all deserve to be getting access to information regardless of how much money we have and taking care of each other. So thank you so much. I'm going to ask you to be on again because I want to hear more about the ADA numbers of people in the U.S. that have uh, diabetes type 1 and type 2. I want to I want to have you on again maybe in a few months if you have the time. Um, but we want to support you guys and we want to help get this message out. So please always let us know how, how we can help with that. Tracy, anything What's, what's the number one site people should go to to get more information on your organization? Diabetes.org. And then if you don't have uh, access to the internet, call our call center, 1-800-DIABETES. I love it. Guys, thank you so much. Tracy, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was fantastic. And guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Life and the Fasting Lane podcast. You can check us out at Twitter and Instagram at Fasting Lane and check us all out with our podcasts and our free information and blogs at FastingLaneTalk.com. Until next time, to your health and hotness. Bye.